Like ever? <laughs> Forever. Forever, ever? Forever, ever? Forever, ever? <laughs> what, what is that from? Why is... Um, Jackson. Yeah, Ooh, thank you. <laughs> and four bees. Four eels, please. Four eels, that's what it was. <laughs> I was like, I know there's a thing. Four bees. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I just thought of bees. You know they vomit honey, right? <laughs> I'm convinced that you're in Big B's pocket. I'm friend of the bees. I know. I, I, I think they're paying you. I get no reciprocals. Mm. You think they just got like a little honey train coming into the house? Yeah. They can regular yep. drop off so that mm-hmm. uh, I keep speaking highly of them. No, bees are just our friends. I mean, you were pretty ready with that payment system, so I'm pretty sure that's real. I'm just a good thinker on my feeder. Except for when it comes to coming up with that phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your week going? It's going really well. I'm excited for a couple of reasons. The first one is that it's October 1st, and I'm very excited to start building that list of spooky movies to watch all month long. Are you are you into that? Do you have favorite spooky movies? Do you have any recommendations? Go-tos would be uh, the one with Bette Midler, Hocus Pocus? Yeah. Okay. Hocus Pocus, right? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> how am I not remembering this now? Oh, jeepers. Apparently, there are showtimes for it. It's in movie theaters right now because it's a thing. Uh, but yes, Hocus Pocus, absolute classic. Nightmare Before Christmas, that's a particularly good one. Love that one. There are probably others, but those are the two that are like, that is core canon about Halloween. I love it. Perfect. Yeah, I've got those on the list and I haven't worked on the rest of it, but I'm just excited because <laughs> it's, a, it's a great time of the year. Uh, the other thing I'm very excited about is today is a monumental day. It is your 100th episode as host and co-host of The Bike Shed. Apparently, yeah. I was surprised by this, but uh, Tom, our wonderful producer, was keeping a dutiful track and shared that piece of information with us. So yeah, uh, time flies, apparently. It doesn't feel like 100, but yay. That's a good sentiment where if you're like, oh man, it feels like it should be my 300th, I'd be like, uh-oh. <laughs> feel like i've been doing this forever and it's the <laughs> no i i love doing this podcast and i'm so grateful that uh folks listen and seem to enjoy it and that you joined uh probably halfway through all of that and we've been on this adventure and yeah it's great yeah it's been so much fun uh so yeah those are kind of the two things on top of my mind how's your week going there was an interesting thing that happened on the client project that I was working on. Uh, we had a weird failure mode in the system where users, when they sign up for the app, there's a bunch of things that happen there. So there's some like events that get fired off and we check if they're going to join a team or various other things. And what we found was happening was that part of it was succeeding, but then part of it was failing. And so their user creation would succeed, but then the next step in the process would fail And they would get some error message back saying there was a failure. But then when they would try and sign up again, it would say you have already registered. And the answer to this is pretty simple. We just need to wrap the whole thing in a transaction. Either it succeeds altogether or it fails. Seems easy, right? You just wrap it in a transaction. Nothing bad can happen there. Turns out (laughs) things can happen. So the introduction of that transaction did fix the underlying issue. So now fundamentally, we had data integrity, which is great. You definitely want to have that. When users were signing up, they now had a more continuous experience. Everything was good. And if it did fail, then they would get the error message. They would try again. And then it would succeed with you know whatever changes they needed to make. 
But the thing that we found is, weirdly, the count of identify actions that were happening in our analytics system had dropped off a bunch. And this was pretty bad because that event needs to be there for any subsequent events about that user to be visible in our analytics system. And the team that I'm working with relies on analytics a lot to understand like segment users and understand how to send emails and various other things. So this is important. And it had dropped down to like 25% of the normal levels which was very surprising. And this was going on for a few days. So it wasn't, we weren't seeing an error, really. It was just happening. And this number had dropped down. And so we didn't think that it actually dropped to 25% signups. Like that that would just be a weird thing because it's a pretty consistent number. And then suddenly we're down to 25% of that. And we had a quick conversation about it. I was like, I don't know, this doesn't make sense. It shouldn't be related to the transaction thing. And then I forget what someone said, but it was like, well, is there any sort of race condition? And immediately my brain just snapped. I was like, oh no, the transaction while that's happening, the user is not active in the database. They have not been committed yet, but we enqueue a job in Sidekick to fire off the event. And if that job fails, like if it tries to read the user before the transaction has completed and actually been committed, then the user record won't be there. So that job would fail to find the user and should blow up at that point. Unfortunately, there was some series of other edge cases that had existed historically where the logical check was put into the job that said, hey, if you can't find the user, just return. And so it would silently drop that failure mode. Normally, this would just retry. So we would see a bunch of errors in our error logging system. But this particular combination of wrapping it in a transaction and having a silent error ignoring mode in the actual job that was sending this off to analytics just totally threw us for a loop. And suddenly we had dropped 75% of these registered events or sign up events. And we were able to fix it pretty easily. Backfilling the data was a real headache, but it was the sort of thing that we decided was worth it. But it was one of those where it's like transactions seem like a silver bullet, but they do have things that you need to consider. You do such a great job of like walking me through these stories that each time I'm about to have a question or I'm queuing up like a list of questions to ask you, you already dive into those answers. So you gave like all the background and then the backfills on the top of my mind. And then you already addressed that. Yeah, that sounds like quite an adventure. I'm intrigued that the silent failure, like I'm intrigued what prompted that. Like if you can't find a user, like, cause someone added that with intention to say like, we specifically, if you can't find a user in this job, when we're tracking analytics, just go ahead and like fail silently or return. And so then I wonder what prompted that addition. This is kind of like the rabbit hole. Then I go down when I'm making changes. So then I'm like, okay, well, what were they trying to do in this case? Or what error were they trying to avoid that they've added this? And now I'm taking it away because we always want a user to be present or we want to make sure that analytics does reference a user. Did you happen to find anything or are you just kind of rolling with it? I had a similar curiosity because I was like, this seems weird. Uh, and in general, more and more over time, silent error modes are a thing that terrify me. And so the minute I saw that, I, I had the thought in the back of my head, I was like, no, if this failure mode existed, the jobs would just retry. That's just how this would work. And it was like, unless, because I remembered seeing vaguely similar things. And I think it had to do with testing. We don't know for certain. The Git history does not contain a useful book-length story of what happened. And unfortunately, the developer just didn't quite remember. He's like, I remember there was something. I think it might have been with testing, but I forget why exactly I did this. I agree. I should not have in retrospect. Let's pull that out of there. We do not have an answer to that, but we've decided we don't want that behavior anymore and we would rather fail loudly. And especially there's a couple of places in other jobs that we have in the system that try and do their own error management or retry logic. And that is something that I've been slowly pulling out 
as I run into similar sort of things, because it turns out Sidekick has a really good system for all of that. Better retry logic. They've thought it through really well. And I just want to rely on that. I want to raise an error, let that happen. We'll see that in our error system so we can you know, look into it and do any sort of metrics. But let the job system be in charge and lean into that as much as possible, as opposed to writing our own custom code that's trying to be smart about things. I am curious for when the job's running, is it likely that the job is going to process? So when a user creates an account and then it fires off that metric and then it's also creating the account so we have that transaction going, is it more likely that that metric job is going to finish before the user's created? So are you now in a state where you're always going to see an error from that job and just know that it's going to retry? Or how are you balancing those so you want the job to occur after the user's created? Uh, So you say I answered all the questions, but no, you got a a good one that I did not answer. So based on the failure mode that we were seeing, 75% of the time that job was running before the transaction creating the user would commit. So 75% of the time it was failing and failing silently in that first version. The solution that I went with, uh, I didn't love, but I just threw the jobs into the future. So I took out the if the user is not found return that went away. So we will have proper retry logic from here on. But I also updated the jobs. Let me see. I think I only put them like 30 seconds in the future, but I did instead of perform async or perform later, depending on like I think sidekick is perform async and perform later is active job. But this was perform in 30 dot seconds. And so that's just scheduling it for a future execution. That's really cool. I didn't know you could do that. That's not something that I've done where you could like specifically say like, I want to run this job, but you know, give it a little bit of time before you get to it. Honestly, it's neat. And we use it in a couple of other places in the app. But at the end of the day, if you think, oh, I'll just add a little bit of time, that'll solve my race condition. It's like, uh, you may have gotten rid of it in most cases. But let's be clear. You didn't make the race condition completely go like you still have a race condition fundamentally. Whereas if I were able to properly sequence this, then everything would be fine. Or the other, in my mind, slightly more interesting thing is Sidekick uses Redis as its storage mechanism. But the database has its own transactional logic. And those are two different worlds. There's sort of like distributed system logic that needs to happen there. And they can get out of sync. That's exactly what's happening here, where within the transaction, we have this user. We enqueue a job in Sidekick or in Redis. So it knows about that user ID, but that is not visible from the outside world because the transaction hasn't completed. The thing that I've looked at, but I've never actually really run with, is systems that actually go back on that and push the job system back into the database. So it's additional load on the database, and especially in high-volume situations, it's probably not going to work. But I want to say delayed job, which was the default that a lot of people were reaching for for many years. That one does that, but more out of convenience, whereas I have, maybe I can track it down, but there's another implementation of a job system based on Postgres. And one of the main selling points is that it does not have this transactional issue. Because this is a thing that can come up anytime you're doing stuff that enqueues a job. And just throwing it 30 seconds in the future is like, great, unless you really have a lot of stuff going on, then it's probably still fine. But there's also an interesting conversation where I sort of asked, hey, what's the what's the most latency that you're comfortable with on this number? Like if I say five minutes in the future and they're like, oh, I don't know. We like to send emails pretty quickly after a user signs up. So probably not that. Want to you know have a little more immediacy. So and I was like, how about 30 seconds? And they're like, OK. So it was, I kind of had to like find that optimization point. Uh, and that's, again, not ideal. And I'm, you know, the, the lower that number is, the more likely I am to occasionally hit that race condition. I think 30 seconds is fine, but I also just feel weird, you know, putting a sleep 30 in my code. That's not good. It's not what I want to do, but it is what I did. 
Yeah. And it feels like that troublesome bit that we were just circling around where you don't know why someone did it. Well, I'm, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that your commit message may uh, allude to bumping the job back. So it runs 30 seconds later. Oh, most definitely. I actually I had forgotten the details of this. And I'm now reminding myself because this was a few weeks ago at this point, but I knew I wanted to talk about it. And in general, it's important to me to write a small novel whenever I make weird changes like this. Awesome. So yes, it's a good commit message. Yeah, that'll certainly help. So yeah, otherwise, someone's gonna come across this and be like, why are we doing this? Can I take it out? Is it still important? Maybe I'm missing something. But is there a reason like, what if you did make it more sequential? Where if you did fire off the job after the transaction completes? Is that an option as well? Yes, that would have taken a more fundamental refactoring. So there's like a common user creator service in the app. There's a couple different entry points to creating a user. And this is actually something that we worked on collectively. There were a lot of active record callbacks previously. When a user gets created, do this and then this, but then this and then this other thing and then make sure blah. And that was all happening through active record callbacks like before save or after validation on the user model. We've slowly refactored those into this new user creator service. But unfortunately, the way we did that, it's sort of hard to resequence things. And the event being fired off happens as part of that user creator. But then there's also subsequent actions related to joining people to teams and some other random things. And it would have been a heavier lift to unwind that. So I went with the easier solution, partly because this was a bad situation that we were in and we wanted to get out of it as quickly as possible. That probably would have been the better thing. But then I'm still in a weird situation where I always need to push that to the last in the list. So I don't know, I could do a weird thing with a block. So it's like create the user, yield it into this block, do whatever you want. And then finally, after that block has completed, I send off the event so that I know that I'm happening last or something like that. But even then, there's still no matter what, if that was happening in a transaction, this race condition still exists. And it turns out sidekicks very fast. Yeah, that makes sense. Because either way, you either have like that delay the job or this needs to always occur last. And neither of those feel great. And in fact, that you are in like a bad spot and that you don't have that time to refactor and go to that other direction. That totally makes sense to me. But I like that you keep me honest. (laughs) So we're here for. But yeah, so that, that was a little adventure I went on reminded me even with things as great as database transactions, there are edges that we have to be careful of. There are no free lunches. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. Anyway, what uh, what else is up in your tech world? I have had a great deal of fun doing something that is just sort of like purely for joy. And that's been wonderful because I feel like I haven't done that in a while where it's been uh, far more like I'm very focused on learning the thing that I need to learn for work. And so the bit of joy that I've had was spinning up a blog site, but it's not so much that I care about the blog. It's more that I wanted to play around with Gatsby JS and also Netlify and Netlify CMS. And oh boy, have you heard of these? 
I have heard of all of them. I've poked at some of them. Um, I'm very intrigued to hear what you have to say about Netlify CMS, because that's one that's been on the edge of my... Uh, we should talk about all of them, obviously, but personally, selfishly, I really want to know what you think of Netlify CMS. Uh, well, I'm going to make you wait for a little bit, and then I promise we'll get there. <laughs> that's fair. No, 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 absolutely. Let's go on a little adventure. <laughs> so the reason this popped up on my radar was thanks to a blog post from Dan Abramoff, where he was talking about why he is moving his blog away from Medium and how he is using Gatsby instead. And I can't recall if he had a link on the blog, but something put on my radar this idea of building a site. Gatsby JS it seems really cool. So for anyone that's not familiar with Gatsby.js, it is a static site generator. So it will take in templates and components, and it's going to generate HTML files for us. And then you can load those HTML files onto a server. So it makes for a really nice, like snappy experience. So when a user goes to your site, they don't have to wait for a file to be generated. Instead, it's already there to serve most of that content. So it works really well for blogs, especially for this type of content that doesn't need to be as dynamic. So that was fun to play around with. And then I also used the Gatsby personal starter blog, which was created by Thomas Wang. There's a really nice documentation section with Gatsby JS where they walk you through all these steps. And I think it's like five steps. It's something that's pretty straightforward where they're like, you can have a blog up and running and deployed and just give us like 10 minutes of your time. So I started with that particular package that already incorporates Netlify CMS into my Gatsby project. And I timed myself because I just thought it'd be fun going through the documentation. And I was up and running in 20 minutes, which is pretty awesome. It was a very pleasant experience. I did run into a few gotchas that were all small, but just to share them for funsies. One of them is that when I ran the Gatsby command, that personal starter blog, Gatsby made the initial commit for me. And I just didn't realize that. So then when I was looking at the files and I was expecting to like commit all of my new added first commit files, I had like one change because I had altered something and it took me a couple minutes to figure out, be like, huh, what? <laughs> like, where did my files go? And it wasn't until I looked at the Git history that then I realized that Gatsby had created that first commit for me. So that was a small gotcha that just surprised me that I wasn't expecting. The other one, when I was doing some of the authentication between like Netlify and GitHub, there's a portion in there where it talks about having access to your account. And a lot of them are very standard, like read only sort of authorization. There's one of them that says read access to emails. And I paused hard because I was like, that seems strange. And I don't know what you mean by that. So I had to look around and it seems like it's a copyright concern because that's the language that GitHub uses, which means that they can see your email address. So that way Netlify can send you notifications and they know where to send them. But that was a, a bit of confusion. And then one of the other small gotchas was then I forgot to add the branch name for my Netlify CMS, but that's a bit of a spoiler because it hints at how Netlify CMS works. So what have you seen so far from Netlify CMS? Mostly I'm interested in trying to add a little bit of an editorial workflow into my personal blogging setup. So I have a repo. It's got markdown files. There's, I think I'm using middle, yeah, middleman as my static site generator of choice. 
but that's fine. They're, you know, largely very similar across all of them. And I'm happy to author in Markdown. But then I want ideally to make like a slightly nicer editing experience if I'm going to ask other folks to come in and do a quick edit pass. Ideally still integrated with GitHub or Git and Netlify CMS seems like it hits that sweet spot really well, but I haven't actually used it in anger yet. So that's what really drew me into it as well. One is to have that sort of like nice UI that then I can work with, but also is the fact that Netlify CMS is Git based. So it's an open source React app and it acts as like a wrapper around your Git workflow. So anytime that I make changes so I can publish my site, I can go to the admin URL and then I can create a blog post, I can publish it. And then Netlify CMS is then going to add that new blog post to my GitHub repo. So now I'm storing all of my blog posts inside of my own account, which I really like. So that way I have access and full control of all the content that I'm creating versus storing it somewhere else. And then having those odd concerns or probably I'm sure they're not good concerns, but I just think like, oh, no, what if, you know, Dropbox is gonna like delete or lose all of my data, which I don't think is going to happen. But I still just don't want that concern. I guess I could still apply to GitHub. We won't poke at that. Um, But all of my content is in GitHub. So I was very excited about that. I also discovered that with Gatsby JS and with this project, uh, that it has MDX, which is something that I haven't heard of, which lets you write JavaScript or JSX embedded inside of your markdown. So it takes a string of markdown and converts it to JavaScript. So that way you can have some more interactive portions to your blog. It's also using GraphQL to access data. So I thought that might be a selling point for you as well. You'd think so. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's been a really just fun experience. Uh, so I have a cute website. If you'd like to go see it, it's in the spirit of October. It is monster-cute.netlify.app. And that's it. You can, go, you can jump straight to the blog if you want, but there's also a button that'll take you there. Look at that. Go to the blog. There's cute monsters. What happens if I click on the monster and go to the blog? Fantastic. (laughs) So it's just a fun monster of the day project. I'm sure I'll leave it up for a while for anyone else that wants to poke at it. Also, the repo that I started is public, so we can include a link to that in the show notes if anyone is interested in the setup and what the project looks like. Um, And I also went through the flow of where I did, I published first from working with like a markdown file locally and pushing it up to repo and then deploying with Netlify, which I also really enjoy working with Netlify. It's been a while since I've used them, but I'm really excited to be back in that space because they do just such a good job with their documentation. And so my repo is set up that anytime I do push to the main branch, it's going to automatically deploy for me. And then I also walked through the step of where I went through the hosted version of my site, went to the admin, and then wrote a blog, added a new monster of the day, published that, and then watched it get added to my uh, GitHub repo, and then also see it be published by Netlify. So it's a really like smooth process. And I'm very excited to play more with it, which is then part of the inspiration of a monster a day, because then hopefully I'll spend a couple minutes each day, and then learn something new about that ecosystem. So yeah, that's that's been the thing that brought me a lot of joy today. That is great. I love the coding for joy. But also, if you're looking at it similarly to me, there's also a very utilitarian aspect of not to not to take all the joy and throw it away. But <laughs> joy is great. But also, I've personally been looking for how can I bridge that middle gap of a client wants a marketing site, but they also want features. So they want it to be like fancy and dynamic in a bunch of places. But they also want to have editorial workflows for non technical users or less technical users. 
They also want to enable editorial workflows for folks who are less familiar with Git or Markdown or other, you know, whatever nonsense technology stack we happen to throw at them. And so finding that right middle ground has been something that I've been sort of searching for. And I think like the tech stack that you've chosen here, uh, I think really hits most of the things that I would want. Although the one hesitation that I have in it of like the things that you've chosen is Gatsby is still bringing along all of React and a bunch of other stuff, which I find interesting. And so that trade-off, like you actually, there's some minor interactivity that you have on the homepage, which is really nice. And React makes that super easy. And because you have the static site generation in the background, the initial page load is going to be really fast. They also do some other fun things with like navigation and prefetching of pages. So overall, it feels really fast, but it's still a lot of data to be transferring. And the thing that I'm vaguely intrigued by and that is probably not worth me spending much time on, but uh, is Svelte as a framework. Have you heard of Svelte? I've heard of it, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. Svelte is really interesting. As far as I understand it, it is meant to be a framework that compiles away. So rather than with React, you write a bunch of React code. And when you bundle up your app, there's React right there in your bundle, React DOM, a couple other packages, and then your app code alongside it. And so you end up with you know, 30 kilobytes, 100 kilobytes, whatever it ends up being. Svelte, on the other hand, is just like, no, 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 we're going to take everything that you did and we're going to convert it into the absolute minimum output JavaScript that we can produce that would still produce that same behavior. And that's it. There's no Svelte runtime that's going, at least I don't think they have a runtime. They may have some very minimal layer, but you end up with these tiny, tiny, tiny JavaScript bundles. And as a result, you end up with very fast sites. There's also no uh, sort of abstractions or overhead because React create element and then a virtual dominance and they don't do any of that. They're just very directly manipulating the page on your behalf. But particularly for things like this, where I want a mostly static page of HTML with maybe a little bit of interactivity, I'm really intrigued by Svelte as an option for that. But it's interesting because Svelte uses a ton of mutation and it's like the opposite of a functional approach to coding, which is fine, but it's most of my work has been moving away from that. And so there was an immediate, when I first started looking at Svelte code, I was like, ooh, that, hmm. It doesn't look like what I... It's fine. All right. Let me just continue on. And so I poked around with like their overview examples page, and it looks really interesting. I've also been really impressed with just the way the author, whose name is Rich Harris, how he thinks about what he's doing. It's a really purposeful project, as far as I can tell, where he's he's got some principles. He's got some things that are somewhat lofty goals, but he's aiming towards those. And it's actually a really interesting episode of Full Stack Radio where he was on and was interviewed and talked about sort of his philosophy and how that has come about in Svelte. And so I'm really intrigued by that. And, you know, what what can we do to sort of bridge that middle gap, that middle space of very lightweight, fast, efficient, but also featureful? It's a difficult target to hit. Yeah, I would be interested in knowing the bundle size for like a Gatsby site, because you bring up some good points. And this was something that Dan Abramoff addressed in his particular post. He's like, before you get out the pitchforks, he's like, I want to work with React. So it's very motivational for him where he wants to have a site that is built with React, which totally makes sense for other folks that are less interested in the technology, but they're looking, like you said, for that lightweight, fast, static site creator. I would be intrigued to know what, like, what the bundle size is and how it compares to like Svelte or other options that are out there. Because uh, I haven't worked with static site generators heavily, so I don't know exactly what is getting included in the bundle. So yeah, that'd be another fun thing to dig into with this particular approach. Yeah, I'm actually intrigued what the default size is for the blog that you created. So it's, I'm guessing it's a pretty representative sort of starter, maybe not perfectly optimized. Although I think Gatsby does some good work on that 
But what I'm going to do now is go into the network panel. I have a Chrome extension called Extensity, which I use because I know that there are a bunch of other extensions that I have that will inject or load other content, which would totally mess up the stats on this. So I've turned all of those off using Extensity. And now if I hard refresh the page with the network panel open, so Command-Shift-R on my computer, downloading the blog, I have disabled cache configured as well. So I'm getting everything fresh. So interestingly, I noticed that you're coming over H2, so your HTTP2, which is neat. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you have any fancy push stuff happening there, but it's cool that they're using that. Only fancy for uh, me. It's the only way I roll. Only the, only the fanciest. <laughs> Let's see. So all total 711 kilobytes, which seems like a bunch. Transferred much smaller, 281. So gzips or actually, oh, you're even fancier. You're using Brotly. So that's cool. Oh, I don't know what that is. Broadly is a newer compression engine. So gzip is take some text, crunch it down, and then reinflate it on the other side. Broadly is a newer version of that that not everything supports, but modern Chrome definitely supports. So all your main index.html as well as a bunch of the JavaScript files are being sent over Broadly and not encrypted, uh, Broadly compressed, that's the word. Your styles are a JavaScript file, so that makes me feel weird. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so all total, it's a good amount. You've got like three quarters of a megabyte of stuff in order to render this page. There's definitely some interesting things happening where there's like a bunch of prefetched other things going on, but that's sizable, uh, especially because the actual raw content of the page is only 26 kilobytes. So the index.html is just 26K, and that's got the initial render of the page already there. So all the rest of that is to add a little bit of interactivity which some of that's great, like the prefetching of links when you hover on them, that's super nifty and makes the page feel super fast, even though it did add additional stuff that we had to download. But it's an interesting trade-off. And I feel like a Svelte version of this might be able to be 30 kilobytes all in. That's it. I like this live uh, investigation that we're doing <laughs> through the console. I'm noticing something that has probably been around, but I just don't think I've noticed it for a while. When I'm in the network tab and I'm using Chrome at the bottom, it is showing me the number of requests, uh, the amount that was transferred, the resources and the finish time. I feel like that's a new thing. Um, I've definitely seen that for a bit of time. I don't know how new. It was definitely like I I'm always impressed each time I open the network panel or any of them. I feel like there's something that I'm surprised by. The pace of innovation, especially in the context of a browser app, which I feel like I've said this on like half of the episodes of The Bike Shed, but the immense complexity of browsers as applications, they do so much and it's so hard. They have to like render HTML, but also HTML if it's completely malformed or if it's this version or they need to know about Broadly compression and gzip compression and anything else that might, I don't know, just seems hard. And yeah, they keep adding new nice features. Yeah, they're the real MVP. There's no doubt. Like you said, in working with broken HTML, I'm always impressed how the browser is able to fix stuff like that. Indeed. It doesn't actually apply in this case because basically you have the index.html and then everything is referenced from that. But if you have more of a waterfall of content where like loading this JavaScript file causes another one to load, causes another one to load, if you hover on any row in the network panel and you hold down shift, it will highlight the other assets that were requested as a result of that. And so you can sort of visualize the associations on the waterfall there, which is a nifty one. Again, doesn't really apply here because it's basically everything happens as a result of the one require at the top. Oh, yeah. Okay. You were naming a file, but I'm actually seeing maybe I'm on a different page than you because I'm not seeing the index, but I'm seeing like a particular like I'm seeing Roz right now, the monster that's on uh, this page. So when folks see this in the future, you will also know who Roz is. Um, yeah, that's really cool. Man, console hot tips today. Yeah, we live in the future, sort of sometimes. <laughs>
and yet we're trying to statically site generate into the past in HTML and live child of all the worlds. It is fun how it feels like it's going back to like the more old school of like, you know, you build an HTML file and you put it on a server and you host that particular file. And then we're trying to go back to that state because we like the speed of it. But then we also like fancy things. So it's we're always striving to find that middle ground of where we want it to be as fast as possible especially for the user, but then we also still want the dynamic and also the user development flow that we're used to where we can change stuff. I mean, if we're being honest, that is the the story of my development existential crises every day. And spoiler for future episodes, but I've been spending some more time with Inertia.js and finding new and fun ways to push that envelope. And uh, I continue to be very excited about that framework as an example of how to do that sort of thing, how to still have the like pleasant interactions of a Rails app that generates HTML-ish on the server, but gives you the nice interaction modes and all of that. So we'll talk about that in a future episode when I figured it out more, but I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited that you're excited. It's going to be great. Today's episode of The Bike Shed is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts, customizable dashboards, and 400-plus vendor-backed integration unifies disparate data sources and makes it easy for teams to pivot between correlated metrics and events for faster troubleshooting. Try Datadog free by starting a 14-day trial and receive a free t-shirt once you install the agent. Visit datadog.com slash thebikeshed to get started today. Shifting gears just a little bit, actually a throwback to two episodes ago, I think, when I had Dave Rupert on and we got to chat. Uh, one of the the segments that they have on CSS Tricks where he and Chris Coyer host is a hashtag hot drama. And right now, as of today, like you said, it's October 1st, there is a bit of hot drama going on on the internet and it has been really interesting to follow. So this is the Hacktoberfest adventure that is so well-intentioned and yet seems to be having a lot of unintended side effects and some ire from the community. And yeah, it's it's been odd to watch. Uh, what are your thoughts? I'm with you. Uh, so we have a delightful channel in Slack uh, that's called Couch. I don't know why it's called Couch. I don't know the history behind that. But it is where we can still communicate with everybody that has worked previously with Thoughtbot. So it's a nice way to still stay in touch with anyone. And someone shared the initial article that was talking about the concern and how Hacktoberfest is bringing a lot of spam to open source projects and how maintainers are feeling a great deal of pain from all of that. And the initial post that I read is a bit spicy. Like you can tell like people are upset, like they are spending time on this and they're getting to the point that they're feeling like they're just dreading October because that they know that this event is coming. And that's something that I certainly hadn't considered. It feels like Digital Ocean's trying to do a good thing. So the intent versus the actual outcome that's coming from it. But then after reading that article, part of me just wanted to be like, yeah, but there's still like other people who are really in this for the right thing. For me, uh, the thing that stands out the most is that t-shirts are pretty powerful, that I had no idea that people would spam just for a t-shirt. They would go through these links to like cause pain in people's lives for a (laughs) t-shirt. Yep. I am also surprised by how much intensity uh, the t-shirts have brought out. Or I, I think maybe part of it is that it's the way the project was structured is such that any change can get you a t-shirt. So it's people being like, I can get a t-shirt for almost nothing. And maybe that, like, I guess, I don't know, sometimes I get free t-shirts and I'm like, cool, a t-shirt. So never mind. I <laughs> I am not as energized by the idea of a t-shirt. 
And maybe part of it is for the thrill of like getting to sort of like exploit like there is this thing going on where if you do these things that then you can get a t shirt. And so it's more they just want to find a way to rig the system. And if people are spinning up PRs that don't really add any value to an open source project, but they still want to somehow win in this case. So to walk backwards a little bit for anyone that is less familiar with Hacktoberfest, it is sponsored by DigitalOcean. It is meant to encourage folks to contribute to open source project. And the way that you earn a t-shirt is that you must make four valid PRs between October 1st and October 31st. So during the month of October, regardless of your time zone, and that they need to be made to a public repo. So those are the rules that I'm talking about when maybe folks are just having fun where they want to rig the system and get the t-shirt, which I will say it's a nice looking t-shirt. It's very, it's very pretty. But then there is the concern where people are just sort of like doing this with malintent and they're issuing spammy PRs that don't add any value. And so the maintainers are feeling a lot of pain from this. And then DigitalOcean did draft a response. Have you had time to look at that? I saw it in passing, but yeah, what are the details that they shared? I personally felt like they did a a good job. So the initial blog post that's talking about how Hacktoberfest is actually hurting open source, they'd mentioned some key areas where they thought what could be done about it. And DigitalOcean in return publishes and says, we are very aware that this is happening. It's incredibly unfortunate. And they managed to trace that some of their promotional campaign seemed to be what was increasing the number of spam PRs that were getting submitted to open source projects. So they have shut down those particular promotions that were running on like YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. And then they're also going to update the rules. So their plan for 2021 is they're going to revisit the incentive structure that they have for Hacktoberfest. They're also going to invest in education of open source best practices throughout the year. So it's not just this heavy sort of like marketing that happens during September and October. And then they're also going to organize around tables with maintainers for continuous feedback. And they also mentioned an interesting one about finding additional ways to reward and compensate maintainers for their time and energy. I'm really intrigued how they're going to do that because I'm certain they don't want to bring money in as an incentive if t-shirts are already having this sort of incentive for folks. But yeah, I I personally appreciated their response. I felt like it was a very timely, well, I can't say timely because I'm not someone that's been feeling this pain for a couple of years, but I thought it was a very thoughtful response and that it had some ways that they're looking to address it. But at the same time, they don't want to shut down Hacktoberfest because of the positive effect it does have for another of other open source projects. And for people who are really looking to get into open source, there's a number of folks that I've seen stating Hacktoberfest is the reason that they had the courage and education material to start their contributions to an open source project. That is such an interesting example of starting from such a positive place. I feel so much for the people at DigitalOcean that are now sort of scrambling today to try and catch up with what was a very well-intentioned project that sort of got away from them. I feel like this is an example of Goodhart's Law, if I'm remembering it correctly, but uh, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. This is like a fundamental economic idea of like, I don't know, when you start telling people that's the thing that they have to do, they're going to do it any way they can, like the letter versus the intent of the law, that all that kind of stuff. And I really, like I said, I feel for the people at DigitalOcean that are very sincerely wanted to do a good thing for the community. And yet somehow it's, it's changed underneath them. And now they're trying to chase it and sort of correct it. And when I first heard about it, I was surprised at the ire from open source maintainers. Uh, Like I get that that can be a very complicated one-sided relationship where tons of people are coming and sort of asking you for things without reading and without putting in the effort. And you, you know, it takes time to reply to all of them. But 
it wasn't clear to me just how bad some of it had gotten. And then I, I follow a handful of people on Twitter that were posting actual images of like the changes that were made. And they were nonsensical phrases added to Markdown documentation. They were in no way an addition. They were, in fact, a detraction. But there were people just you know trying to game the system. And that is really unfortunate. And sort of at the core of it is... I think this interesting idea around open source, open source is such a weird economic model that it's great that open source exists and it's wonderful when more people can contribute, but there is a starting cost in getting people into it. Like it's, it's wonderful if more people are doing open source, but it's not free. You have to learn about a code base and you have to understand you can't just do these drive by commits. That's complicated, but also how do you get started? How do you do the first thing if you've never done it before? And I don't know, there's there's so much complexity out there. I'm continually impressed by and intrigued by projects that have found ways to monetize open source. Like there's all the stuff that Adam Wathen's doing with Tailwind Labs and Tailwind CSS and sort of the adjacent projects around that where they've now built an entire company on top of this and are able to still maintain the stewardship and progress of the project. And there's Remix Run, which is an interesting one that's coming out from um, Ryan Florence and Michael Jackson of the React world. And it's got, I I'm actually don't know the particular structure that they're going for, but I feel like it's a, you pay for a certain level of access to it. Or like Sidekick is another great example where Sidekick, most of the time when I'm using it, often when I'm using it, it is free, but there's the Enterprise Edition. And as far as I understand it, Mike Parham's made a business out of that. That has been his work for many years. He's now transitioned onto you know a similar related project, but that, I don't know, dual economic model of some of it's free and the benefits are shared with everyone, but also there's a way to make money um, and GitHub sponsors and all of these other things. I don't know. I do not have a cohesive central thesis on this but i'm super intrigued by how do we make all this stuff work because i believe open source is a very deeply good thing for the world yeah well and i think that's the dream is where you get to work on something that you care about that you're passionate about and you get to share it with the world others get to contribute to it as well because that's what's going to make it strong and long-lasting but then you also have a way to monetize it so then you can make it your full-time job where you get to work on this thing that you care deeply about so yeah i'm i'm with you i'm also very interested in that And another example, except in the opposite direction of stuff that I'm always impressed how much is free and hasn't been monetized. Uh, So like Netlify CMS, the one that I integrated with for the blog, that one's completely free and it's really cool. And I'm just always surprised or grateful when this stuff is open and then I can use it. But then also wonder in the back of my mind, like people need to get paid, like they need to have the monies too. So yeah, I'm with you. There's that interesting division of where we want things to be open source. We want people contribute we want others to use it freely but at the same time man it'd be great if that could be like the full-time job is working on things that you love although in this case with netlify cms they are backed by netlify so they do have someone that's able to back that product and then they can push people towards netlify so it's a really great advertising platform for them and i mean it worked for me like i'm i'm using netlify i'm pretty sure i'm still i'm on the free tier for it but at some point like i could become a potential customer so that works in their favor yeah, Netlify definitely has an interesting freemium model. Like I use it for my site and it also has the forms integration and I get that for free. So I, I, there's some threshold where I don't know if a lot of people submit to the form on my website to contact me like a hundred or more a month, then I would have to start paying for it. Turns out not that many people use the contact form on my website, which is fine. I want the contacting, but that would be a weird number. I would be overwhelmed by that many people contacting me. The one that caught me recently was Postgres. 
Postgres is this incredible piece of software that is at the heart of so many businesses and it continues evolving and gaining new features and having new versions that are coming out with just incredibly powerful and impactful code. And I've never paid a dime to Postgres in a manner of speaking, like I'm sure that Heroku does pay in some way. If not, I think some people on staff at Heroku work on Postgres and things like that, but I'm still like if it were Oracle instead, then it would be $10,000 just to have the first phone call and then a million dollars a year of a retainer contract in order to be able to use this software. Like that's the direct equivalent. And they're, those are very different worlds. And I'm so impressed and intrigued by how that one has worked out. There are definitely plenty of cases where it doesn't work out. And there are developers who have worked so hard and built wonderful things, but they just haven't taken off. And then there doesn't end up being that corporate sponsorship. And I guess corporate sponsorship from the outside is maybe a weird thing, but... I don't know. Now I'm getting way too much into economic theory and I don't know anything about it. So I'm going to stop rambling. (laughs) Well, and you made an interesting point. I think you said this earlier where nothing is free because then with open source, there are people that are paying. They're paying in their time if they're passionate about the project and they're contributing to it. So then if someone else is using that project and they're not contributing to it, which is totally okay, but then there are folks that are then investing in it. So you are essentially benefiting from all the time and effort that other folks are pouring into it the interesting to go once more back into the world of economics the interesting argument that i've seen is that a lot of that free labor gets taken advantage of by large corporations that are now building and making lots of profit on top of these systems and never paying back into that system in any real way so like i'm a company i use postgres i use rails never pay for any of them and i just made a billion dollars last year cool And there are lots of developers who are putting in a ton of time on their nights and weekends. And, you know, you can say it's a passion project and whatnot, but there's a lot of economic value that was generated on top of their work. And finding a way to reconfigure that, I don't know, many people have written books and awards have been fought and things. So again, we're well outside of my my knowledge zone, but (laughs) it is interesting, I think. So on that economic scary thought, happy October 1st, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.